Hi, y'all. Welcome to Cracks, a podcast about big pivots, beautiful diversions, and essential truths of life, and of course, circus. I'm Jessica John. I was a CIA analyst who, at the pinnacle of my career, fell in love with being upside down. So I'm asking friends and experts, and sometimes myself, to share knowledge and tools about how they are finding their way through movement, through business, and through life. All right, let's get to the fucking point. All right, here we go. Episode one. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe it's happening. I think I'm playing that clip from The Office in my head. You know, the one with Michael running around like a crazy person. Um, I'm Michael right now, just trying to stay calm. So... I dreamt up this podcast about three years ago now, and um, yeah, you're probably thinking, what took me so long? Hi, I'm the problem. It's me, (laughs) but I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to finally get some of my thoughts down on the page. I am definitely not going to hit pause, so if you hear any drinking, any coughing, that's me. I'm a human. Um, I'm kicking things off with a solo episode. And I thought it would be best to start with some of the things that I wish I had known when I first started Ariel. Now, that doesn't mean if I would have known, I would have listened to myself. Um, I'm kind of stubborn like that sometimes. But I figure some of these things might help you out there. So this first episode, I'm going to start with Ariel from the practitioner, from the student, from the client perspective. And then either in the next episode or coming up sometime soon, um, I'd like to talk about the same thing, talking to Ariel coaches. So, what is the number one thing that I wish I would have known? The importance of attunement. That's a big word, right? Attunement. Attunement is simply noticing. Noticing what's happening in your body. Paying attention to how movements feel in the body. And when I first started Ariel, I have to say that I paid a lot more attention to how things looked rather than how they felt. And that makes sense, right? Ariel is an aesthetic sport. The first time you see Ariel, you experience it, you're blown away by what people can do in the air. And you sort of notice that people look kind of similar in what they're doing. Yes, they're doing lots of cool tricks, but they're doing it with straight knees and pointed toes and all of these traditionally balletic movements. So when I started Ariel, yes, I did have some dance background, but I was never a very good dancer. 
um, I definitely honed in on those things, right? I saw that circus was all of these cool tricks, but within these confines of the dance world, and I took upon myself to mimic others so that I could look somewhat like how they looked in the air. That meant when I was learning Ariel, I was copying my coaches. I was copying what I saw, let's say, on YouTube, because when I started Ariel, there wasn't really Instagram. <laughs> so I was looking back in YouTube videos, trying to find other people practicing this art. And I tried to copy what they did. And so this combination of figuring things out and copying people on the internet and trying to copy my coach meant that I was really paying attention to how I looked in comparison to them. And I had really no sense of how things were supposed to feel in my body. And that meant that I had no ability to discern the warning signs of things like overtraining. Um, I didn't know if I felt a twinge, if I felt a tweak. We love that word, don't we? Tweak. That how to decide whether or not that was something that was dangerous or if it was something that I could push through. So the number one thing that I would impress upon people when they're first starting out in Ariel is to consistently check in with sensations. That doesn't mean that the first time you feel something, you're going to know what it means, right? If you don't know what productive discomfort is in relationship to pain, those words mean nothing. But what you can do is compare sessions over time, right? How does something feel this session? Okay, this time my left hamstring felt a little what I would call sticky. The next session, it felt a little less sticky. The next, it felt really stiff. The next, it felt a throbbing pain, kind of at that gluteal fold area. So you start to notice how things change over time, either in a positive sense or in a negative sense. And therefore, you can notice when things deviate from the norm in your body. You can hear the warning signs or see the warning signs. I'll also say here as an aside, attunement is really great for understanding what's happening in your body from an injury mitigation um, or paying attention to whether your body is recovered or things like that. But it is just as important in being an artist. If you want to have real control over your body, 
to be able to make it do what you want it to do, being able to pay more attention about how movements feel is going to help give you that control to express what you want to express. Okay, number two. I don't know why my voice just did a little up there. Number two has to do with comparison. So I alluded to that in number one. But when I first started doing Ariel, I compared myself a lot, a lot, a lot to other people. Now, I am not a competitive person at all. Actually, it's problematic. Um, I used to be a competitive tennis player. I'm putting quotes around competitive because although I loved to play tennis, I remember my senior year of high school, I paid more attention to perfecting my serve than to winning matches. And my coaches did not agree with that. (laughs) And I kept losing. And I didn't really care because I was really motivated um, in one movement of playing tennis. I wasn't motivated at all to actually beat other people. So that was problematic. That's why I no longer compete. Um, But yeah, so when I started doing aerial, I was very um, internally driven, but I had no metric of knowing how well I was doing. So the only way I could tell was to compare myself to people in my classes or, again, people on the internet. And with regard to my classes, that I also found challenging because I was an athlete, or at least I identified as an athlete. Um, it had been a while since I had done any rigorous <laughs> athletics. But I grew up a tennis player. I grew up a skier. I grew up a dancer. So when I started a new pursuit, a new athletic pursuit, I wasn't comparing myself to someone without an athletic background. I was comparing myself to who I perceived myself to be, rightly or wrongly. So that meant, again, looking at YouTube videos, where all I could find to figure out how I was doing or how I was progressing was the videos that were produced from students in professional training programs. So I scoured the internet, finding all of the acts that were up on YouTube from NECA grads, from ENC grads, really from the best circus schools. And was that an appropriate comparison? Um, Well, considering that I was just 
a an adult enthusiast of aerial arts who was taking a couple of classes per week at my local circus school. I'm going to say probably not. So the more that you can avoid comparison, comparing yourself to others, the better. But I recognize that that's not possible, right? We are, we're humans. We are going to compare ourselves. So if you're going to do it, at least try to get in the realm of logical. Think more about, okay, what is my athletic background? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And then talk to a coach. Right? Your coach is there to help you determine how well you're progressing. So ask if there are things that could be moving along more quickly if you're impatient in certain regards. Work with a coach to help improve those perceived deficits. Um, work with the coach to get better at the things that you're already good at. But don't get into this comparison trap with people who have very different bodies, very different resources, very different time constraints. All right. Number three. This is really hard for me to say because, hi, I'm Circus Mobility. But one of the big things that I just did not understand when I first started, and it's part of what shaped who I am today, is the importance of mobility training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I was looking at these people on the internet and deciding what I thought was possible or not possible for me, making all of these judgments. I was making a lot of those judgments about aesthetics. And when I thought about what I needed to do to rise to a certain level as an aerialist, what I was thinking about was also the aesthetic elements. So when it came to mobility training, if I was thinking, I really need a front split, well, that's so that I could do a front split in the air. If I thought I need a back bend, it was so I could do a scorpion position in the air. So everything in my mind was very tied to a skill, not my ability to move through positions and support myself in those positions. Um, it was all very skill focused. And that really came at a certain point to kind of bite me in the ass, right? I uh, trained very hard and without a ton of guidance and 
worked myself into a place of a lot of pain. And I'm not saying that everyone who doesn't prioritize mobility training will end up with as serious of an injury as I had. Because again, we're different bodies. We start from a different place. We gravitate toward different things. But you're putting yourself at a greater risk for issues down the road, whether pain-related issues or just not getting where you want to go, not progressing anymore. I was lucky that the timing of my really bad injury um, coincided with some newfound time in my schedule. And I pretty immediately jumped right into some um, intensive gyrotonic training. Gyrotonic is a movement system that is based on 360 degree um, movement within the body, expansion, spinal articulation, etc. And through doing tons and tons of gyrotonic and getting great massage and physical therapy at the same time, um, I worked my way out of pain and came back to Ariel stronger. But if I would have understood the importance of mobility training when I first started, I, I don't think I would have found myself there. So mobility training is not just about aesthetics. Um, it's also important to every single thing that we do in the air. Number four, I feel like I'm on like, I don't know, a talk show or something. Not a talk show, a game show. That's it. Um, number four, <laughs> I wish I would have known that gains are made in recovery. In my mind, gains are made from taking more classes, right? When I first started, okay, origin story. <laughs> I walked past a flying trapeze rig in Washington, D.C. at TSNY and thought, oh, no, I'm not doing <laughs> that. I've always been kind of afraid of heights, so I had no inclination whatsoever to do flying trapeze. But then I saw someone doing aerial silks and was surprised that something like that was offered in DC, went to the website, actually immediately went to the website, signed up for a class for the next day and took a class totally hooked on my way home from that class, signed up for another class the next day. So immediately I was all in. I would never suggest, perhaps this should be one of the, the numbers, but 
not a good idea to go from zero to two or three classes per week of an activity like Ariel all at once, um, but that's what I did. Um, and I really believed as I got more and more involved in this thing that the key to getting better more quickly, because I was an an aging Ariel novice, right? I started Ariel in my early 30s. Um, But the way to get better more quickly was simply to take more classes. And so that's what I did. This also coincided with a time in my life where I placed a lot of priority in going out. I had a beach house in Dewey Beach, and I spent my summers there. There was a lot of partying, a lot of drinking, and I was trying to pair this intensive new physical training with very little rest, very little recovery. And had no idea that what I was doing was actually um, not allowing me to get the full benefit of each and every training session by not getting good sleep, by drinking so much, etc. So I wish I really would have understood. That doesn't mean I would have made a different choice. I mean, truth be told. It might have meant, though, that I didn't push quite as hard in my training sessions because sometimes there just seriously wasn't any point in it. Also, although I had been weight training prior to starting Ariel, I had a personal trainer, I went to the gym three or four times a week. I had no real goals. I just grew up in a a gym. My parents owned a gym when I was um, young. And so it was something that I knew that I needed to do to maintain my health over time. But when I started doing Ariel, I pretty quickly gave that up, right? If I wasn't doing something that I thought was directly supporting my goals as an aerialist. And if my goals were tricks, then I didn't see how lifting weights were going to help me with those tricks. If I was more concerned about getting that split roll up in the silks, how on earth was going to the gym going to help that? Clearly the answer was to take more classes. And that's what I did. More aerial classes, mind you. We already talked about the mobility training aspect. I was not taking flexibility classes. So big takeaway there. Make sure that your recovery is supporting your training. Number five, I wish I would have known that the foundations are truly everything. When you first start out with Ariel, I mean, there's complete 
shiny object syndrome, right? Everything you see, you have no idea really how hard it is. So why not try it and fuck around and find out, right? Um, and that's what I did. I took class. And those classes were generally not series classes. They were drop-in classes. And they were all level classes. And what that meant, because I was strong, I had been, you know, working out in the gym before I started Ariel, I was strong enough to do things that I wasn't quite prepared for. I was strong enough sometimes to keep up with the more advanced people in my classes. But that didn't mean that I had the body awareness, I had the control, I had the strength and some of the accessory muscles to support the movements that would have really helped me down the road. And that's not, this isn't a, you know, a diss on um, all level classes. I think they're great. I love them. Um, it's just really incumbent upon a coach in that situation to be able to work with the different levels within a class. When you skip over some of those foundations, at a certain point, they all catch up with you. All of them. <laughs> and because I skipped over certain things, when I eventually went back and tried to do them and found them extremely difficult in my body, I just wrote them off. I thought, well, I mean, I'm a 30-something-year-old aerialist. I don't have to do everything. I just won't do that skill, right? That works. And Yes, absolutely. You don't have to do anything that you don't want to do at any point ever. Well, like, except for, I don't know, taxes and bills and things like that. But you know what I'm talking about. The anytime you write off a skill because it just doesn't work for your muscles. <laughs> I can think of some exceptions here, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying um, there are some limb length dif differences that could cause you to not be able to do certain skills. Absolutely. There are some um, genetic factors. There are some disability factors, right? There are definitely things that could prevent you from doing certain things a certain way. Absolutely full stop. What I'm talking about here is deciding that I can't do a back balance over the bar because I'm not bendy enough and it's uncomfortable, so I'm just not going to do it. The problem with some of those thoughts is it stops you from working on those skills in progressive ways. And when that happens, the gap in your body's ability to move through certain positions diminishes. So if you think about 
like a well a well-rounded aerialist every time there is something that you decide that you're just not going to work on at all there's a, a little hole in your ability to move and the more of those holes you have the more over time you might fall in one you don't always choose you don't always get to choose where you go. Sometimes you just slip. Sometimes you didn't realize that a thing was going to put you into that range of motion. And suddenly you're there. And you're like, okay, well, did I hurt myself? Can I get out of it? And that's what deciding not to change to train certain ranges of motion that you could find yourself in in the air does. It creates these holes in your knowledge, these holes in your strength and mobility that eventually you're going to find yourself in. This also plays into... Um, repetitive movement and balance in the body. So our aerial foundations are everything, but our foundations as movers are everything. And if you can only hang from your arms in the air, what happens when you have to push, right? What happens when you're moving through the world and your hips hurt because you can't walk more than a mile? Whenever we do a specialized activity like aerial we're repeating movements over and over and over within the body. And mind you, repeating movements that aren't how our bodies were designed to move. That doesn't mean that our bodies can't move that way and we can't train to move that way. But what I'm saying is from a um, the, the way our joints are put together, we are bodies that were designed to walk, right, on our legs. <laughs> and whenever we start to do things that deviate from that design, we have to prepare our bodies to do that better. So when we leave, like when we repeat things too much that our bodies can't handle the amount of repetition, our movement options get smaller and smaller within the range that the body has become accustomed to doing. I'll give you a little example here from, um, not from Ariel, from weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting, because I, a year ago, started Olympic weightlifting. And truthfully, I partially did it as a 
a cross-training activity, but I also did it because it was Oregon and when the weather is really shitty here during the winters, it's hard for me to train aerial. And I wanted to do something that was still in the realm of an overhead athlete. And so I started working on my snatch and clean and jerk. And my body over the course of this year has decided that my overhead range of motion or my stability within a certain range um, should be very, very small now because through repetition of lifting heavy load over my head, my body wants to provide as much stability as it can for the motions that it perceives that I do the most of with as much efficiency as possible. And that just means that my shoulders, oh my God, they are so tight. (laughs) So if you do anything over and over and over, right, within a, a range and certain load that is outside the parameters of what you do in your normal everyday movement, your body is going to adapt to that. Um, And it may not be the adaptations that you anticipated or the adaptations that you want. The foundations of movement will help balance your body so that you can offset some of the impact of the repetition that you do through aerial. All right, number six. This one's kind of a doozy. (laughs) You might think watching Ariel that the opportunities that people get in this industry are all about technique, but they are not. They are about, they are about (laughs) relationships, right? So, If that is true, then why do people go to circus school, right? I'm not saying that technique doesn't matter. It does. Also, having good technique makes you more efficient in the air, which means that there's less wear and tear on the body. You can perform more. You can do more. That type of training is important to being, to becoming a professional or to um, get certain opportunities. But beyond that, the way people get the coaching opportunities, the way people get the performance opportunities is about relationships. And so if you even early, you know, in starting Ariel, see this as something that you want to have longevity in from a performance perspective or from a coaching perspective, if you have goals of being a coach or you already are, um, think about building your networks and maintaining good relationships with your current coaches, 
with the people in your classes that might be your peers. There's kind of a, um, a mindset that if I get really good at this thing, then finally I'll get discovered. And it usually doesn't work that way. Yes, you have to be moderately good at the thing, but if you spend your time waiting around, um, someone else is going to be picked over you. So build relationships and go after whatever it is that you really want instead of waiting around for it to come to you. Number seven. I wish I would have known how much stress was impacting my training. So I already talked about this in the context of uh, recovery. But I like to separate these two things out because stress can be a hard thing to recognize in yourself sometimes. And if you know about it, you might feel like, well, there's not like there's anything I can do about it anyway. When I first started Ariel, um, I was working for the government. I not always, but often had really ridiculous deadlines. I spent a lot of time commuting. And then once I started coaching, the amount of time that I spent commuting from one coaching opportunity to the other, really stressed out about being late for things. I know this seems silly, but if if you've ever lived in a, a city where the traffic is completely unpredictable. Like, I mean, I, there was a point where I lived five miles from a workplace and I didn't know if that was going to take me 20 minutes or two hours. That, that really starts to mess with your head. So the stress of having all of these different uh opportunities, really, right? I, I was felt so honored to be asked to coach at all of these different places. But I was rushing around from one place to the other, getting there early, waiting around, spending so many hours in the car, and then had a full-time day job that was also very stressful, especially before I decided to leave that job. It didn't even occur to me, not one little bit, that stress was impacting my ability to progress in the gym. I got that it was impacting my ability to show up, but I didn't get 
that sometimes what I was doing was counterproductive. I didn't understand that some of the stiffness that I felt in my body um, had more to do with my nervous system dysregulation more than anything. I also traveled a lot for work. I mean, in retrospect, traveling to Africa, traveling to these places, having periods of time with inconsistent training, it just, it was not a uh, great combination for the type of intensive training that I was doing. And we are at number eight. I wish I knew that a lot of times I was simply trying too hard. What do I mean by trying? I don't mean trying too hard, like from like an emotional level. Um, I mean trying too hard within reps. So I didn't understand the concept of modulation or modulation of effort. I had a lot of uh, training experience. I, when I grew up, um, my first job was working the front desk of a gym. And so I've, I've been weightlifting since I was a teenager although not always consistently. And although I paid attention to reps and sets, I didn't have a great understanding of either the idea of um, rate of perceived exertion or reps in reserve. So, I'm not sure in retrospect how I decided to progress weight. I think I just picked things that I thought were heavy <laughs> and then just did the number of reps that I thought made sense. Um, but I didn't pay too much attention to how far away from failure I was. And if I did, I was trying to get to failure. And that's that whole like no pain, no gain sort of idea within physical training that was very popular in the 80s. And so it's kind of persisted maybe up until now. I thought that the way to get better at aerial was to push myself to failure every session. And sometimes pushing myself past that, right, to, to injury. Um, I didn't know how to back off of it in a way that allowed me to focus more on other aspects of movements. So, for example, if we're talking about acquiring a new skill that revolves around a specific pathway of movement, if you are always going at, you know, 100%, meaning 
you're only doing the actual skill in the air at its, you know, the exact way that eventually it will be done, but you're not strong enough to do it, then you're just failing over and over and over again. As opposed to doing educative movements, like rolling around on the ground and and using bands and weights in ways that can uh, take some load out of the movement, those things allow you to modulate your effort in order to concentrate on other aspects of the movement. So I didn't really understand the importance of being able to modulate my effort. You can think about this. So let's say you pick up a dumbbell and it's not a very heavy dumbbell for you. And let's say, I don't know, it's like five pounds, something pretty light. And you're doing a bicep curl. And I tell you, okay, do 10 reps. Uh, Okay, you do 10 reps. You're like, well, Jessica, that was really light. (laughs) What was the point of that? And I say, okay, now, now do the exact same thing with maximal effort. What would you do, right? How would you make a light weight at maximal effort? And there's lots of things you could do. You could slow it down really, really slow. You could um, play around with the tempo of the movement. There's There are lots of choices that you can make there on how to make something more difficult or easier, depending on what you're trying to do. But the weight in and of itself does not determine how hard the movement is. And this really applies to flexibility training. When you're trying to push yourself more to your end range, in order to increase that range over time. Any flexibility movement can be modulated to make harder simply by increasing that range of motion or changing the speed or changing the weight or something like that. And if you're only doing it the same way over and over and over, well, you might from a flexibility perspective, might be going too easy, or you might be going way too hard. You don't know how to back off enough. So I was always trying too hard, right? I was doing toes to bar, and it didn't matter if I was stabilizing correctly for my shoulder blades. I was going to get my toes up to my hands every time. If I was doing a split, It didn't matter if my nervous system was freaked out. I was going to get as low as possible every time I trained my splits because that was the point, right? I was always trying too hard. And on days when I was stressed, on days that I was tired, I didn't know how to still show up 
but bring my effort level down to a place that it was productive. All right. Those are the eight things I wish I would have known when I first started aerial training. But if I did know, I probably wouldn't have listened anyway. Maybe. I don't know. Some of them I would have listened to. Some of them I would have given some serious side eye to. But now I know. Now I'm here, hopefully helping you along the way so that you don't have to go through some of the exact things that I went through. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for sticking around for episode one. And thanks for listening to the Crux Pod. Oh, hey, you're still here. If you liked this podcast, I'd really appreciate you give it a subscribe. And by the way, if you are anticipating joining the Conclave, that is my three-month one-to-one coaching offer, get on that wait list. The link is in the show notes. Okay, get out of here. No, really.